Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, number eight. I'm Dill, your host, and we're here to explore the price tags and the paychecks of the business that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. My guest today is the same guest I had last week, music journalist and author Mark Kemp. Mark has an all-star resume for a show like this. He's written for Cream, Spin, Rolling Stone, Option, The Village Voice, and Creative Loafing. On top of that, he did a stint at MTV and is the author of the book Dixie Lullaby, a story of music, race, and new beginnings in a new South. So it should come as no surprise we had a lot of good stuff to cover, and we ended up talking for two hours. So last week you heard part one of our conversation, and without further delay, let's jump right into part two of my talk with Mark Kemp. So let's get back to uh, so Rolling Stone. They came calling at some point when you were at Option. And- yeah, it was pretty exciting because, um, you know, I had I wasn't even thinking of that because I was at Option. That was a cool magazine. So it was weird because my dream, you know, from twelve years old was to was to work for Rolling Stone, and and here I was in L.A. working for this magazine I loved and thought was really important. And then Dave, uh, David Frick, uh, who was ed- music editor of Rolling Stone at the time, um, decided he didn't want to be music editor. He just wanted to write. And uh, he recommended that um, the managing editor, Sid Holt, and, and the publisher, Jan Winter, you know, uh, talk to me and some other people. And um, uh, I ended up at Rolling Stone. Um, and I was a little torn about that because... It was my dream to go to Rolling Stone, and yet now here, here I was at this magazine that I thought you're, was. You're at really, the indie. You're the, yeah, you're I was. The indie I was the. We were the anti. Yes, I was. I was, and the, we were the anti Rolling Stone. We were like, you know, what they're selling. You know, here's here's the real deal. You know. But you know, it was Rolling Stone. Yeah. What did <laughs> the What did the publisher say when you left? Oh, Scott. Yeah. Who is a dear friend of mine still, and if he's listening to this, he'll. Um, he was so pissed off at me. He was so, I think he felt like uh, it was a slap in the face because we were, we were together in this thing and, and um, you know, righteous and against Rolling Stone, everything Rolling Stone yeah. stood the, the for. The underdog. Yeah, we were the underdog. We were doing it together and then, and then I went to Rolling Stone and, I, and, and here's the worst, to add insult to injury, um, I helped Scott find my replacement which was a guy who wrote for us named Jason Fine, and Scott hired him, and I got to Rolling Stone. And within a few months, I think, uh, I knew that I, I needed Jason at Rolling Stone. Oh, no. And I hired – and that really – that really – it was wrong for one thing. And by the way, Jason Fine is still the editor of Rolling Stone today. <laughs> he, he like has been there forever now. But – um. Uh, you know, it was wrong, and I, you know, at that time I was just, you know, I was younger, and and I was like, oh, I need him, and I can get him, so I want him, and I wasn't thinking about, you know, yeah, yeah the nuances sure. of friendship and loyalty, you know, loyalty to Scott who had given me this jumping board to, you know, eh. it 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 affected it for a little bit, but not for long. We're to well, we're close today, so. Yeah. Sorry, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about, um, I guess, you don't have to get specific monetarily. Was it a, you know, were you going, again, you're kind of going minor league to to major league. Um, 
and have to move back to New York, which is the most expensive place yeah, on, yeah, on yeah. earth. I was making a lot more than I was when I first moved to New York. Right, but 89. a big jump from, I mean, it was option in a place to pay you well. Even L, I mean, L.A. is no cheap ticket either. No, but it was cheaper than New York, particularly at that time. And option, you know, when I first started out at option, I was making, a lo- I was making more than I was making in New York. Yeah. And so I was able to actually find a, a decent place. And, you know, I lived in Topanga Canyon, for Christ's sake. Nice. It was great. Um, but... um. But I wasn't making a lot, but I wasn't making enough, and I was fun. I was happy with it. Yeah. Um, um, and and Scott compensated me well, you know, and he would raise me well. So you know, he w- it was good. Um, and from what I read, you brought success to the magazine. I mean, during your tenure, you guys. Yeah, we you know, we we jumped up. I mean, my predecessor was great. He was Richie Underberger. He knew so much about music, and and but they were putting people on the cover um, that you know, like Ornette Coleman, who's like amazing free jazz guy yeah. but it's not something that really i remember asking scott when i first got to option i said do you want to kind of more like um speak to the audience that you already have or expand the audience he said, well, i'd like to expand it but i don't want to sell out you know right, that right, sell right. out was a big word back yeah. then don't want to sell out but yeah i mean we wanted to bring some and i so that was good for me because I liked more of that more mainstream stuff, and um, and I also realized that you know, it's really cool to have all this cool music, but if you're just kind of if it's in an echo chamber, what 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 point are you serving? So I think so. What I wanted to do is kind of put more familiar people on the covers, and more familiar. I mean, P.J. Harvey and Liz Fair and people right. who were still pretty <laughs> underground. Sure, but um. But more from the and George Clinton, Michael yeah. Michael Stipes, people like that. Um, so yeah, we we got pretty pretty successful, and also because we were lucky because that timing the timing was really well for the kind of music we did. Right. So we could do a Breeders cover in 1993 or four, and it. And the Breeders were already on MTV, whereas if we'd put a band like the Breeders, the Pixies on the cover, and, and we did put the Pixies on the cover. In the 80s, mm-hmm. it, they were still very much underground. Yeah. So the so the trends in music went our way, too. But I, I do take some credit for it, and Scott would, too. Uh, he thought, you know, my ideas about putting Nirvana on the cover right. pretty brilliant, <laughs> but of course he would because they got <laughs> famous. Yeah. You know. But, yeah, um, yeah, I don't know what we were talking about. <laughs> um well, we're get, getting to Rolling Stone. It was yeah. it was kind of the question of, um, you know, getting a pay bump going. Oh to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. the Rockonomics, yeah. But also, uh, we can. I think you. We'll skip that question altogether. Yeah. But I think. Um, or was MTV was the big bump. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, it was probably a noticeable. Like now, you have, you know, unlimited access. You know, people are banging down your door to talk once you're at Rolling Stone. You, mean, you think? You no. think? I mean. So, because everything was kind of different at that time, like Pearl Jam really wanted to be on the cover of Option. They would have done anything to have been on the cover of Option. We just never put Pearl Jam on the cover because there were other people to put on the cover that we thought were doing more adventurous stuff you know, right. at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would have, you know, they would have given a, anything to be on the cover of Option. And we're just like, eh, no, we're not quite ready for that. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Get to Rolling Stone. I want to get put Pearl Jam on the cover because it does make sense. They're you know they're mainstream. They're but but they're you know adventurous for mainstream. Um, they don't want to be on the cover of Rolling Stone because you know sellout. Right. Um, and uh, so it wasn't always easy. 
uh, to get people. We also had issues during that period, and uh, and I think maybe this happened at Rolling Stone before my time. I just don't know. I wasn't there. But it was like we wanted to put No Doubt on the cover. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't want to put No Doubt, the band, on the cover. We wanted to put Gwen Stefani on the cover. Yeah. And, and, the, and But they were like indie band too, you know. They came sure. from those indie roots. No, man, we're in this together. And, and it was so hard. We ended up putting, I think, I don't know. You got the book there. I, I think we put them all on the cover, and it's because putting a full band on the cover one is never doesn't never looks as good as putting one yeah. person on the cover. And two, Gwen Stefani was no doubt, you know, yeah. and, and we knew it, and we could see that she was going to become this solo star. Yeah. Um, What's so, funny? Their video at the time depicted don't that think, whole yeah, yeah depicted that whole scene of like I think that edging was, out the band and I think that was putting her front center at, right after that yeah I so think, it, I, mean, I think that was probably the second or third single yeah I think it album. might that might have had something to do with it because you know um, yeah it was an issue within the band they they were definitely had inner conflict oh you got a phone call there better turn that off <laughs> <laughs> you can take it if you want to I'll That's just hang good. out here and talk to the folks. We can edit. Thank God we can edit. Um, so what were you talking about? Uh, 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 Rolling Stone and, and the access. Okay. Yeah. But access was easier at Rolling Stone. I mean, you know, I could go places and do things and money was there at Rolling Stone right. that, you know, I could, they could fly me out to LA or they could fly, you know, or, or, London. I, yeah, or London. Well, you know, Scott flew me out to London to do Morrissey. Oh, so, oh, oh that's yeah. right. That's right. So yeah, I mean, um, but Rolling Stone could do that more, and they were paying me more, and um, so yeah, I mean, and the, and just people, you know, I, I got to do things like you know, David Bowie, uh, you know, invited me to his fiftieth birthday party, oh which God. was a little bitty soiree in this British uh, restaurant in Manhattan, and it was just me and a few people, and I'm like, God. Oh, I'm going to David Bowie's birth, 50th birthday. It's a big deal. What's going know? through your head as you're walking in? Holy shit. I grew up listening to David Bowie, you know, Ziggy Stardust, and I'm going to his 50th birthday. Wow. It was pretty. And there were many times. And I still get it. You know what? I get excited about talking to young musicians in Charlotte, North Carolina for an alternate week. So I just get excited talking to creative people. But yeah, when I was. And and at Bowie's birthday party, I was kind of pinching myself going, "You did this thing, man! <laughs> you did this thing that the twelve-year-old would have would have said, no, no, man, no way." I've had a couple of different guests that we've touched upon meeting your heroes, yeah. and one is one uh, avoids it, and he brought up a funny. Uh, he, he mentioned like Steely Dan, oh. if it was if it was Walter or the other guy. Yeah, he's not. like there, he's he's like last thing I want him to do is be nice. You know, it's like I want him to keep up the persona of being this, you know, yeah, like right, right, curmudgeon guy. And uh, the other one welcomed it and had terrific stories. Where do you fall? Were you happy to? Oh like, bring yeah, it down? you know, I mean, and and people do um, sometimes disappoint you. You know, you, you uh, and I'm trying to think now. I mean, I wasn't disappointed by Lou Reed because I knew what I was yeah, walking yeah. into with Lou Reed. Um, then there were people that you know I thought would be like angry curmudgeons and they were just the nicest people in the world like bob mold of husker do i was like oh, this guy is the nicest guy in the world you know he was just a really cool guy and so some people they they people do defy your expectations a little mm-hmm. i don't mind and i don't even mind you know like um 
live. I remember Rolling Stone, Paul McCartney is, you know, he, the, Rolling Stone has a rich tradition with the Beatles, you know, right. and, and, uh, Jan loves them. And, but, um, and then the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of controlled by Rolling Stone. And, you know, it, it was started by Jan Winter and, and, uh, Ahmed Erdogan. Mm-hmm. And, or Yetnikov, one of those I record think. guys. Um, and um, so the Beatles got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of course. They're the Beatles. And then John Lennon got into the Rock and Roll. And then for a long time, Paul McCartney did not get into the Rock and Roll. And Paul McCartney's the biggest whiner in the world. And I just, and I just remember going, just thinking, man, you're a Beatle. You know, you, you're a Beatle. How many people are Beatles? Four, <laughs> right? And you're, you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Beatles and you're whining because John got in and I didn't. (laughs) And so people like that, you know, like I just want, you just want to slap them. Like you're, you're the most privileged little white boy musician in all of rock and roll, all of rock and roll. You're Paul McCartney and you're whining. Funny. You little bitch. (laughs) Did did you meet any of the, um, Beatles? I mean, surviving Beatles, I guess Lennon was killed when 79. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, Paul McCartney, but on the phone, but never actually in person. Um, and um, Ringo Starr, uh, briefly, yeah. But there, uh, yeah, no, and never George Harrison. I was, I was, oh, I guess I was at MTV when he died. But no, not at face to face. Never, never, never even saw him live. Interesting. And what about? Um, I'm not really. I mean, I lo- the Beatles are. Uh, Scott and I used to have this argument. The Beatles, I like them. Right. You know, they're good, but you know, I think they're. Uh, no, this is going to be like. <laughs> give me something to. You know, yeah. Give me a headline. I think they're. I think they're overrated. <laughs> I mean, I think they they are massively important, and and the fact that they change from "I want to hold your hand" to like Sergeant Pepper's sure. is just. You. I mean, absolutely, you can't deny that, and and just some of those songs are just great. You know, the great iconic songs. But come on, there are so many other bands besides the Beatles sure. doing really fascinating, interesting stuff. You know, and by like you got a train. So I, I love trains. This is trains. Very, very New York and very rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> the trains are all you know Hank Williams, but um, you know I mean, so I remember nineteen. 19- okay, yeah. I thought you lost your train of thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1989, you had people like Public Enemy doing albums like, you know, it takes a nation of millions yeah. to hold us back. And and you have, you know, producers like um, the Bomb Squad. Um, and they're, you know, putting together these pastiches of music and making this totally different kind of sound. That's just absolutely fascinating and, and groundbreaking and button pushing. And you're still talking about the fucking Beatles, you know. Yeah. And, you know... Give them their due, but they, but you know. So I'm I'm not. I'm a fan of the Beatles, but I'm a fan of the Beatles. Like I'm a fan of other yeah. really important uh, artists. Well, you and I aren't too far in age, but it's not really our generation. To we didn't we didn't grow up with them, well, so to speak. It wasn't that it wasn't your first song that you heard on the radio. Like once I heard, you know. I want to hold your hand. Uh, yeah, it was you know, over. I yeah, yeah. Everything and, my sister was you know, committed to. <laughs> but you know, I did because my sister was around. I do remember, you know, when they came on Ed Sullivan. She she was like a teen. Uh, I guess uh, she like four or five six, years old. Yeah, she was like nine. And I was probably like five. Okay, and um, 
I remember her like oh, she just couldn't stand it. The Beatles were coming on TV. Oh, oh my funny. God! Because it was their, you know, it was her Backstreet Boys or mm-hmm. you know something like that. And that's really what they were. They were the freaking Backstreet Boys at that time. <laughs> and uh, I know I, I say that and that pisses people off. <laughs> yes, they became more, but at that time, that's what they were. Yeah, for sure. Um, and um, so, so I do remember that, and I do remember some of those songs when they were still together, coming out like "Let It Be" and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And they were great, you know. They were no greater than the Rolling Stones to me at that time, or yeah. certainly not the Temptations, you know, or Jackson Five. I mean, you couldn't beat the Jackson. <laughs> that was my my Beatles. You know? It's funny. I think the first. I think one of the first Beatles songs for me was filtered through the Carpenters. The Carpenters did a cover of Help, oh. and I knew that start to finish better than I knew the actual real right albums. right right it's kind of like uh, knowing uh, uh, Proud Mary yeah. I, I didn't even know that that was a Creedence Clearwater Revival song about Tina Turner and I heard the oh, Creedence yeah. version I'm like what is this <laughs> oh it's their song yeah I feel like a lot of my ch- you know my childhood was mostly in the 70s but I, so yeah. many cover songs were dominated what I knew and then I would hear you know to your point you would hear the original like what? Like, hey, what is that? Yeah. It's a different, <laughs> yeah. that's, well, that's an interesting take on this song. And that happens with Bob Dylan songs a whole lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, you hear, sure. Here's the other people cover Dylan. And if, if you're not familiar with Dylan, you hear it. In fact, I had a, my ex-wife was like, she, she grew up in the 70s. She was black. She came from Chicago. And, um, you know, she, she knew Bob Dylan songs through other people doing them. It's like... I don't, know, I don't like his versions too much. <laughs> just, he's got a terrible voice. <laughs> it's so. true. I mean, it's it's funny when you hear uh, the covers of Bob Dylan. They're, they're much. There's more. It's much more dynamic. Yeah, in yeah. other artists. Hands, yeah, but not to knock him. No, song. and he's not. Yeah, and he no. He he. I, I love Dylan, though not as much as Phil Oaks. But um, I love Dylan. But um, yeah, when the birds do Mr. Tambourine Man, it's just you know it sparkles. It's. It's it's baroque pop. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, speaking of Phil, let's a good segue to. So you did the liner notes that you were actually uh, up for a Grammy. Correct? Yeah, I was I was nominated for a Grammy. That's got to be yeah. pretty cool. Was that oh, well, a, it was, was that su- a- it was a surprise. I um I was at MTV at the time, and we you know every year you go through all the Grammy nominees to you know either at rolling stone to do an article or mtv to do a show on it you know i was going through all this stuff and i had not gotten very far i mean a lot of people are nominated for grammys that you never hear about Mm -hmm. you know inside people and background people and so i was going through this stuff and a publicist called me and she said hey mr grammy nominee and i said what are you talking about and she goes oh you didn't know you don't know and i said what she said you've been nominated for a grammy for these liner notes and i went they have a Grammy for that, which is what everybody says whenever I show my little um, certificate, my little Grammy certificate. They so, say, what did you get nominated for a Grammy for? And the liner notes in there. You get a Grammy. I didn't know. Yeah, Who knew? Totally. So now I know. And then it was pretty <laughs> exciting. Um, and I had done the liner notes for this box set by this folk singer who, okay, so we talked about me like in the Jackson 5 and mm-hmm. and uh, the Allman Brothers. There was also a folk singer named Phil Oaks that I had been blown away by when I read his obituary in Rolling Stone in 1976. Um, he was like a super political 
and I love that stuff. Uh, I, I love political music. I like I like when social issues and music intertwine, and I think that's why I like maybe like the Rolling Stones better than Beatles, or Bob Dylan better than I mean uh, Phil Oaks better than Bob Dylan because right. Dylan did some socially conscious stuff, but he went on to do other stuff. But I really like it, and I like Rage Against the Machine, and I like Public Enemy, and all these. These socially conscious sort of, you know, you're talking not just about love, but you're talking about the world around you and and uh, issues in that world and how they affect people. So I loved Phil Oaks. I thought, well, I wish I had gotten to know you. You know, he died like, uh, I mean, that's how I learned about him. Sure. And so I really listened to a whole lot of his stuff throughout college when I was politically active, and and I just loved Phil Oaks and. I got the opportunity to write the liner notes for a box set that Rhino Records was putting out. And it was, um, I was at Rolling Stone and I was very happy, you know, at that time and I was very thrilled to do it. And then, then the box set came out and the next year when I was at MTV by then, uh, I found out that I had been nominated for Grammy along with, now, Grill Marcus wrote the liner notes for another, for I think it's his anthology of American folk music, the, the uh, Harry, uh, Harry Smith thing. Yeah. Uh, and they were brilliant liner notes. And so I was up against, and somebody who wrote the liner notes, the Al Green box, and I was up against a lot of <laughs> stiff com- competition. But just to be, just to be nominated. I yeah, was, sure. It was because I think just that same day I was dissing the Grammys, going, man, I no shit. <laughs> I hate the fucking Grammys. And then this person got went, what? Yo, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it was like all of a sudden happy, like everybody is when they're nominated for a Grammy. Yeah. For some reason, I've, I've known, I guess because they have an art direction uh, Grammy for like you yeah. know, mm-hmm. design, design of whatever. Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Label design, <laughs> you know, like yeah. everything. There's a Grammy for everything. So, Which is sad because I know you and I grew up with uh, vinyl and yeah. you know, just the, the fact of liner notes and that that was all we had for internet. You I know, know I know. over it and be like, what's an engineer? What's right? A, you yeah. know, what's what's a master? What's a master or do? Yeah, yeah. And you <laughs> learn about it through the liner notes, and you learn about the like. That's how I learned about you know the the you know you in bands like the Rolling Stones, you know Mick and you know Keith. Yeah. But then you can read the liner notes and find out these other guys, Charlie Watts guy, who is he? Yeah. Bill White, who the hell is this? Side know? musicians, all that. Yeah, stuff. and so Alan Jazz liner notes are the best because you really get to know about every single player and how they interact and stuff like that jazz jazz liner notes nat hentoff uh there that's those are the liner notes that's funny yeah um so how did you get to mtv of all places well funny you should ask um kind of the same way i did at rolling stone i was um well, I was at mtv i had a writer there named jancy dunn mm-hmm. and jancy was very popular writer she because she had this really gift of just kind of being really chatty and and very conversational in her pieces and she would just bring she would kind of take the air out of these rock stars and, yeah and uh she was great she was just a great writer and um at one point and she had a friend that she knew over at mtv and at one point they were doing this this uh, thing called MTV Two, you know, where mm-hmm. they would uh, they they started doing this sweet thing like MTV, and there's MTV Two, and there's MTV, you know, MTV yeah. Classic and stuff like that. And they thought that Jancy would be good to come on to MTV Two and and do these little spots. So Jancy um, said, "Yeah, you should do something." And I had been on MTV a lot, you know, like you know, as you know, Mark Kemp, music mm-hmm. editor, and. Um, um, and so they started talking and then 
uh, I can't even remember her name. Oh, yeah, the woman at MTV, but she talked to her. No, well, no, that's that was the president, Judy McGrath, but it was um, somebody else, somebody. a producer or something. And she was talking to Judy and, and uh, Andy, uh, which was another big wig there at the time. And um, they invited me over for co- for lunch one day, and you know, and they said, "Well, we." And what happened is VH1 at that time had Bill Flanagan, who used to be at Musician Magazine. He was doing really great stuff at, at VH1, like behind the music. And um, there, he had the show called called Legends, which was a less um, mm-hmm. it was a more serious behind the music. It right. was it took the bands real serious, and it would be like the Who and the Stones and stuff like that. And then behind the music, of course, told the sordid tales behind the behind the bands. And um, those things were doing just really great. And MTV, on the other hand, had kind of gone away from music. Right. Uh, one of the many times that it kind of like now um, kind of went away from music. So, um, they talked to me cause they, they, cause they're part of the same company, but they're f- like sibling rivals mm-hmm. at that time. Yep. Or, and so Judy McGrath, president, you know, she wanted to kind of bring a, a little credibility, music credibility back to rolling, uh, back to, um, MTV. And so since VH1 had hired the musician, musicians editor, Judy wanted to hire Rolling Stones editor. And, um, so we talked and. I came in. Oh yeah, it was Andy Schoen. He was the real. I mean, Judy was the president, but Andy was the day-to-day guy. Right. And he and I had really some great conversations about what we were going to do with MTV. You know, and these ideas about bringing, um, you know, behind the music type shows, but or or um, uh, yeah, legends type shows, and yeah, just yeah. how to how to do this in a way that remains, you know. Uh, quick cut, you know, interesting for MTV's audience, but you know, uh, more nutritional. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of ideas. So I, so he hires me. Great salary. I mean, I had no idea people made this much money. <laughs> and um, I got to MTV, and the day I got to MTV, the uh, Andy Schoen was fired. Oh no! And I. Uh, and then Judy brought me into her office. She says, "I know you're probably a little nervous now." And I went. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I mean, what we had these plans. She said, I know, I know. And so if you could just, you know, hang tight and we'll figure something out, you know, roll. And I'm like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? So I have literally sat in my office for the first several weeks at Rolling Stone, just kind of, I mean, at uh, MTV, just kind of, what is my role here? What I, I can't do those things that I wanted to do because the guy I planned them with is no longer here. Right. And nobody else knew about this. And they had hired me to – the big marketing was, you know, Mark Kemp from Rolling Stone was hired to put the M back, to MD, back into MTV. And I'm like, how are we going to do this? And nobody was like, you know, it's kind of cutthroat around there. Nobody was really like on my side. Right. So I was this uh, – you know, I went down to VH1 and talked to Bill Flanagan. What the hell do I do? And he was very helpful. Uh, they ended up putting me on the team that was developing this new live TV show. For, they had, had this DRL. new studio, yeah, new studio in Times Square, and and they had a show that they were doing called MTV Live, mm-hmm. and uh, they said they wanted me to get in on the ground floor of that. And so when I got there, there was no, there was no thing, uh, uh, no, there was no concept for right. for this MTV Live thing. And one thing that I, I mentioned was you, 
you don't want to call it. And, and these, and the people who have been hired to do a lot of the production at MTV at the time had come over from Fox, the Fox Network, not not the conservative political Fox that we all know and hate today, <laughs> but the but just Fox, um, yeah. uh, from Fox TV stations, and, and they're just production people, and they knew TV really, really well. What they didn't know was music. And I said, you know, it's probably not a good idea to call this thing MTV Live. I understand if it's Fox Live because that means something totally different in the news world than it does in the music world. It means you're going to have some people on their live, playing live. Right. And that's not what this thing was. They were just doing live TV right when kids got out of school, these interview type things. And they had a few people that they were trying out, one of whom was – um, this British guy who I really liked and Ananda Lewis who had come over from BET and Carson Daly who had come out from LA. He was working for radio out there and they had this thing called MTV Alive and, and one of the things I recommended was we changed the name. Mm-hmm. So we went into these big board rooms and I had never you know, experienced such like – I mean it's just – doggy dog in those things. I hate it. I really hate it. I hate it with a passion. But um, you know, we had all these meetings and finally came. We were we wanted to give up the you know viewers opportunities to to request songs. Yeah. And um, and I thought, wow, what if what if we gave viewers the opportunity to request anything from MTV's video catalog? It would be great. I mean, if you wanted to hear, if you wanted to see Flock of Seagulls. Yeah. If you wanted to see Black Flag's TV party, you could just request. It'd be Total Request, you know. And so we decided on the, the name Total Request Live. But what I didn't know is there was a whole bunch of other departments that were competing and that were in cahoots with the record companies. And they said, yes, they can they can request anything they want to as long as it's on this list of 10 videos right here. And I went, that's not total <laughs> so the concept was kind of smashed from the get-go and um but it was really exciting to work on live live television we we would premiere the videos and and uh it, it, as we went on uh with that we were bringing people and we were trying out different people mm-hmm. uh before i even got there they brought me onto mtv live with rick Ocasek of of the cars. the cars and we realized that that's probably not the place for you know uh rick Ocasek. you know when kids get out of school and they don't even know who the hell rick Ocasek is so we started getting younger people on there and people more relevant some more alternative type people that i'd written about at rolling stone option and then some there were these this this crew of young young kids that were uh forming or they were not forming they were being formed put together in these groups like backstreet boys okay in sync mm-hmm. and young people from the mickey mouse club that had grown up like britney spears and Christina Aguilera, and all, you know, suddenly, yeah, that we, was the, the bread and butter of. We started getting as we got more of these these people in. I would look outside the window, and we started getting groups of young teenage girls um, and preteen girls, right. mainly, you know, and they were starting to carry signs, and you know, Nick, we love you. And I'm like, wow, this is this is not what I really expected uh, that I'd be doing, but. This is getting big, you know, and 
we were talking about is Carson really working for this thing, right? And the producer and I talked, and I said, you know, he's stiff, you know, and Bob said, you know, he's yeah, he's stiff on camera, and I said, and he has a hard time remembering, you know, asking the questions, the musically relevant questions, which is what I have been brought in to do. Right. And you think we should let him go? I don't know. I don't. And I remember going out there one day, and Backstreet Boys weren't in there, and NSYNC wasn't in there, but the little crowd was there, and they had signs that said, Carson Daly, we love you. And I went, okay, we can't fire That's Carson. That's so funny because I, I, I wasn't sure where you were going to go with this because I was like, I think he – wasn't he there for a really long time? He was. Oh, yes, he was there for a long time because that day, that day I went – Bob, we can't. That's yeah, Carson's, Carson is with us for good. And Carson was a great guy. He was a great guy. And he was – and I think it was because he was kind of that awkward boy next door. Mm-hmm. That's what his appeal was. It sure. was the very awkwardness that we saw that was his appeal to like you know young kids getting out of school. You know, he's kind of like me. You know? Yeah. He's either like you – know, he's the classic sort of if you're a boy, you want to you know, you, you yeah. be him. He's like – He's like you only, you know, he gets to meet all these cool people. And if you're a girl, you want to date him because he's always oh, cute. And he's <laughs> he's um, the boy next door and he's non-threatening. So that was good. But I was miserable and I asked to go over to VH1 where where we actually we did a little bit more about yeah. the wheelhouse. Yeah. Did you, uh, you know, you mentioned that like, all, you know, was uh, the time all these youngsters came up. Did you observe anything, uh, you know, just in particular about... Like these kids are doomed. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't mean to be. Well, yeah. Just, you know, uh, like these kids are being fed into the machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, I remember this was right after. This is not not long after. Well, it's a few years after Kurt Cobain had killed himself, and and that, that that had a big impact on my life, and and um and, and I was actually in recovery from you know during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, so watching that as a recovering person was really really hard so um by the time i got to mtv um i was seeing kids these young bands coming in and they just were on the top of the world and this was before the whole uh team pop thing really took hold but they mm-hmm. were still like these alternative rock bands cookie cutter alternative rock bands that um that had been signed in the wake of nirvana and they were coming in and they were arrogant and they were like on top of the world and i would just know you know you have no idea you're just tacked right off and you're gonna be dropped from the label as soon as if if that single doesn't do x amount of yeah. units you know that's what they think of you in terms of units and you don't even realize that and of course that happened you know and it was kind of depressing yeah you know watching the industry from that cynical standpoint um it was depressing and um but people like Backstreet Boys and those kids were, I mean, they were put together and formed by people knowing that exactly what they were going to do. I got the sense that like kids like the Backstreet Boys kind of knew more what they were getting into than the mm-hmm. alternative, alternative rock bands from Illinois sure. who like thought they were going to you know, be Nirvana, you know. Uh, these kids were they were entertainers, you know, and they knew it, and they danced, and they had a whole, you know, they they had started on Mickey Mouse Club, yeah, so they, they knew they, the industry. They were in the industry since they were about five, six years old. Exactly, and they were they were actually a lot. You know, I mean, listeners out there who, from that era who think, you know, um, I'm just trying to think of, I can't even think of the names of those lost. Alternative rock bands yeah. that kind of went. Candlebox. By. Yeah, Candlebox. If you're thinking Candlebox, Backstreet Boys, you, probably they wouldn't think. You know, Backstreet Boys are a lot more savvy than 
cannibals are right. smart, and but they were. They yeah, they really kind of were. They were really knew what was up. And and I like Justin Timberlake was a, a good kid from the time he was young and coming on there every day, and he grew into this really creative, interesting, savvy guy. Yeah. Um, I never would have guessed that like I would that, be yeah. saying that, but you know, it's just true. You know? Yeah. I I ran into uh, I think it was J J C yeah, yeah. Chavez. Or, yeah, yeah, J C Chavez. I rented him in a, at a studio after, after I think the you know popularity waned. But uh-huh. I was impressed because we got into like their work, the work ethic, uh-huh. and what they had to do for uh, recording and for shows. And it was just like holy, you know. Again, oh, yeah. it goes to peeling back the, you know, people think it's all fun and games, but they were like they were had a hardcore regimen of just rehearsing eight hours a day. And, and mm-hmm. sh- I never saw their shows, but I, I know they were they were talented. choreographed pyrotechnics. Like they had to learn that stuff inside and out. They had to be in shape. They right. had to hold the notes. Yeah, hold the yes. notes while you're, you know, run a mile and then you know and hold, hold the notes. Note exactly. Yeah. And, and people that would criticize them if they were like off a little bit, but, but like they were doing all this other stuff. Yeah, no, the, these these guys were incredibly talented, and, you know, very very hard working, and and uh, yeah, yeah. And when I was at Option, I would never imagine that you know many years later would be saying that but it was just true yeah. and they, you know and some of their stuff was actually you know good pop songs sure. it go, it, you know I kind of come full circle when Jackson going back Five, to the fi- Jackson 5 who yeah. were also incredibly talented and there were good ones and there were bad ones the Osmond brothers were a little less uh, creative <laughs> or interesting but Jackson 5 were and the same thing happened during the, the boy band crowd. I, I wrote this kind of humor column on boy bands um, for Creative Loafing, uh, many years later when One Direction was coming to Charlotte. And um, and it was kind of both humorous and like kind of serious, but it was written with humor. And where I just put the Beatles and all those bands in together, they were all boy bands. And then what happened later, you don't know, like Justin Timberlake became really a talented singer later and successful and the Beatles became this really talented interesting group later but at the very beginning they were all boy bands they were all team pop yeah you know, interesting. So. I must have read that that sounds very familiar yeah I mean I wrote that but I wrote it with like I wrote it as like who would you know like who would have known that I would do this horrible thing <laughs> but uh, yeah it wasn't so horrible I mean, it was. I didn't really like being at MTV for many reasons, but that wasn't really one of them. It was mainly I didn't like the way that MTV was in cahoots with the record companies in ways that I kind of had suspected, but I had no idea the degree to which, you know, they were working together to break specific artists and make mainstream stars. And that wasn't what it was about at Option for sure, and not even at Rolling Stone. Right. So um, let's move to uh, your book. Okay. And, and that's – I mean I'm not too far off. You went from MTV – To the book. To pretty much the book. You went yeah. – you were freelance. Yeah. How did that come about? I mean were you just had to go around and pitch people or – I mean you obviously – you had big jobs. You're in the know. Yeah. You just have to pick up the phone and make a couple calls to say uh, – Well, when I was at Rolling Stone, we had a um, – uh, a Rolling Stone book imprint, a Rolling Stone press that had been around for a long, long time. And we had our own kind of sort of uh, um, literary agent who, okay. who worked with a lot of music writers. And um, I knew her well. And a friend of mine who actually, interestingly enough, is from my hometown of Asheboro, North Carolina. And we grew up together and we were friends. And she and our brother, my, 
me and her brother were like best friends. We're the ones who went to see the Jackson Five together. She was head of Rolling Stone Press. Oh my god! <laughs> when I was oh. the editor, so you had two Funny. people from Asheboro, North Carolina, heading major departments at Rolling Stone at the same time. Who knew? Anyway, so um, Holly had introduced me to um, I can't remember her name, but one of the um, the literary agent that we worked with, and she would always come by my office when I was at Rolling Stone saying, "Mark, you need to write a book." And I was like, oh, I don't have time to write a book. I don't even know what the hell I'd write about right now. And she would just do this all the time. Mark, you ready to write a book? No, I can't write a book. I'm too busy right now. And then I got to MTV and, uh, Mark, you going to write a book? She was still calling. <laughs> no, no, no. Although I could have at MTV. I had more time on my hands. But I did um, – some point I would go down to shows in New York, um, and I had written about punk rock and hip hop all my career. This is those were the the um, that's the music that was that fed me. You know that was my you know that was in my soul, and I loved these two kinds of music. But I remember you know growing up listening to Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers and all mm-hmm. these southern rock bands because that was the period. And I would go to these clubs, and all, so, suddenly these southern rock bands were coming back like. Government Mule and right. Screaming Cheetah Wheelies and Black Crows who I'd already written about. And I was like, what's this thing going on here? And then, of course, Outcast comes out in, like, Atlanta. I'm like, Southern thing? I mean, I was so far beyond that. Right. I thought it was really interesting, particularly the rock part, because I'd grown up with this stuff. And I had, like, a can, I had a difficult relationship with Southern rock. On the one hand, I was very political, the Phil Oak thing. On the other hand, uh, I liked the sound of country and soul blended together as rock. Um, but then there was some aspects of some of the Southern rock bands that I thought were stone racist, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there were other Southern rock bands like the Allman Brothers who were very, very like, you know, they sang passionately of of King, Martin Luther King's death, you know, and and songs like People Can You Tell Me, Love Is Everywhere. They were more hippies, you know. Right. So here was this new crew of Southern rock bands, and it was weirdly reminiscent of the other. Uh, and I started thinking about it, and I called the uh, arts editor at New York Times, and I said, I have this idea for a story. I don't know if you'd be interested, but um, kind of reconciling my, you know, the, the Southern rock's past with this new breed of Southern rockers who for whom that, that racial stuff is not doesn't really matter anymore. It's not an issue. This is clearly not this time period we're in now. But at that time, they're just, you know, that it was kind of, well, I won't say post-racial because that's, there's no such thing. Right. But for these bands, that was not a big issue, either defending the South or not defending the South or talking about the beauty of the South or, or talking about the ugliness of the South. None of that was an issue. Um, but they were very, very Southern. So I thought there's... There's something going on here. We've gone from this anger of the of Leonard Skinner or this mourning of the Allman Brothers to this anger, this righteous anger about you know rebel rebel flags and shit like that. Mm-hmm. From Leonard Skinner to this kind of artistic detachment that bands like REM and B52s went through, to this full circle of this kind of southern boogie stuff that's not really laden with all that stuff. And so I wrote a, uh, this piece for the New York Times that kind of explored that. And um, I left MTV at one point. I just started really thinking more and more. And my friend Megan, who happened to be my girlfriend at the time, and also Jan Winter of Rolling Stone's niece, <laughs> um, was saying, you really need to write a book. Um, 
because you've been talking about this nonstop, this, this stupid Southern thing. So you got to just do, you have to do this book. And so I started thinking more and I, and I remembered that this agent had wanted me to write a book and I went, okay, I'm ready to write the book. And she goes, ah, too late. I, I, you know, <laughs> I was no longer at Rolling Stone or MTV. She'd moved on. <laughs> and I went, dang, man, she used to come by every week and ask me about my book. And now she doesn't want to take my calls. Um, although she did look at my treatment and, uh, uh, but she, I found another agent who was really, really in love with the idea. He liked it a lot. Uh, Dave Dunton. And he, he, uh, he really went to bat for me and he sold the book to Simon and Schuster's free press imprint. And, um, that's how that came about. I just basically took that piece that I'd done for the New York times and then turned it into a book, you know, okay. went down back, came down, back down South and started doing uh, research and talking to these old members of, of um, Southern rock bands, you know, and it was fascinating. I went to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where um, everybody from, you know, the Staples Singers to uh, Otis Redding, uh, Otis Redding and the Staples Singers and Aretha to Leonard Skinner had, had, and even the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I went down to record. Yeah, had recorded in this, this famous studio, and it, it's it's really on the side of a rural road, like you would see here. It's phenomenal. I couldn't believe it. I'm like the Rolling Stones came in, yeah. and when me and the, one of the guys who was, they were called the Swampers. These guys, mm -hmm. and Leonard Skinner sang about them in a song actually. And Muscle Shoals, they got the Swampers, right. you know, and that's them. And um, one of the Swampers, Jimmy Johnson, took me to the original Muscle Shoals studio. And I remember he was like, oh, was it, or was it David Hood? One of them. Uh, and he was knocking on the door, saying, hey, you know, and he was yelling. Some guy was living there, and he said, oh, wake up, wake up, I got somebody who wants to look at it. And um, it was great. It was just fantastic seeing all these places, and they were not at all what I expected, oh, yeah. like, where this great music had been made. Sticky Fingers was recorded there. That's crazy. <laughs> Man, my... my, uh, my boss actually is from that area and she's like you you would you'd never realize it. it's like oh, on the yeah. side of the road it's this, this little it's in the curve of a road it's, and it's in the, the, even the town what town is it in is muscle, muscle yeah Shoals muscle shows but yeah it's florence okay, it's yeah, right yeah. across the the river from, uh, from muscle, muscle shoals it was called the shoals area and it's florence i think and not much going on there no <laughs> no it's just no yeah, but there's a lot of music musicians and a lot of producers because of its legacy. But, sure. but there was then too. I mean, that's all it is. It's just, I mean, these just terrific players. I mean, so after I started working on Dixie Lullaby, I was um, like punk rock, hip hop, all that stuff. I, I went back to that and just deeply into the roots of the music that was being made in Muscle Shoals in Memphis. I had a brand new fascination for it. It extended way beyond, oh, Sticky Fingers was recorded there. Leonard Skinner recorded there. It was like fucking Otis Redding and Percy mm -hmm. Sledge and, and Aretha Franklin. I mean, these, these bass lines and these, these little, you know, this, the little riffs on uh, Mustang Sally by w Wilson Pickett. Like, these guys recorded all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, there were just a few guys in Muscle Shoals and in Memphis um, and they were integrated, you know, they were like black and white. I mean, most shows were almost all white, but except for the singers. And in uh, Memphis, you know, you had the Booker T and the MGs, which was like a mixed band at a time and nobody was mixed. Right. It, was, it was Memphis, too, you know, where King was killed. And I went, oh my God, this is there. There's just. There's a story to tell here, and I had always been interested in in stories about the civil rights era, but I didn't want to write. 
you know, about the black experience (laughs) because I'm not black and, and that's kind of offensive. And I I would read other white, uh, intellectuals writing about the black experience. I go, this is just something wrong with this. Um, the quote, you know, people, so I didn't want to do that. Not at all. So I decided to write about, you know, being white and growing up with this music and how this music affected me. I grew up right when they desegregated the schools Mm -hmm. And we had to kind of find our way through that. And I chose music as kind of a a map. And I went, okay, well, I can write that as a story. And that's what I did. Interesting. I uh, yeah, I got a I got a copy. I've started it. I've, I've read the reviews. So I, I feel like I have a pretty good uh, overview of it. But it's, uh-huh. I mean, so far it's very interesting. Um, how are you? Are you? Do you have any? Uh, do you have a hard time? No. To give up? No. Uh-huh. Okay. Because they can say we you're going to have to edit the hell out of this. They're going to do. <laughs> I'm long winded. We're going to do a couple see. parts. No, but trust me, I'm having a great time. I'm oh, good. Um, um, I'm and I figured the book I could either gloss over it or like go into know, it, dive yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, immediately once I got the overview of the book, all I could think of was it was released at the wrong time. Like it should be out. I mean, if you oh, had, have you had any discussions of re-releasing yeah, it? Today? Well, I you know. If one, if I if I had written it today, it would be a different book. Um, I mean, it wouldn't. I mean, if you even if it was released pre-election, yeah, pre-election, uh, that, and that's what I was thinking about well, during the election. I was thinking, God, it, it would be a different book. I'm very sympathetic to the Southern uh, white, um, I, I guess. Ad- Identity and how I understand the some of the you know particularly southern white you know hillbillies who are the mm-hmm. is the, was the kind of the last bastion of of bigotry you know you could make fun yeah you're just a hillbilly you're just a, so I'm I'm very sympathetic to that in the book by the way this is not all the book the book's about much more than this it's about you know and, and it comes from a very of a from a progressive um, sort of um, uh, socialist sort of look at this and that's my my I couldn't help but bring my perspective in and, and uh, I don't even hide you know objectivity and stuff like that because it's not what it was about so it comes from that but I was very sympathetic from a progressive sort of socialist point of view of of that that feeling of being fucked over and and ignored and being part of a divide and conquer sort of of, of thing that and it really happened you know during the civil rights era you know this divide and conquer you know how do you how do you how do you win if you're the man if you're the one percent is you you know Pit these poor blacks against these poor whites and let them go at it, and we can do it. And that you know that's a that's a long America has a long history of doing that. Um, but but now today, uh, I don't think I would be so sympathetic because I see. But don't uh, you like I I, I I tend to share your views. Uh-huh. I mean I'm very liberal, but and again I'm only halfway through the book or a quarter way through the book. But to, I, I feel like you would have the. Pers- you would know where they're coming. Everyone's yeah, I coming do. From. I do, and I, and I, like I say, you know, right or wrong. Yeah, or like, well, I'm know. I'm still sympathetic. I'm still sympathetic, and I under sympathetic in that I understand uh, that I understand that um, those those feelings and how 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 and and I've talked to African American friends who who feel the same way. So I'm sympathetic, and, and I paint that in the book. You know this this understanding, and I also say you know talk about the the, the pitting against each other of uh, uh, but today 
I see a almost a a, a vigorous uh, uh, sort of proud sort of defiance right from uh, that that's completely wrong headed uh from this group of white men mm-hmm. mainly right and there are more but white <laughs> men mainly that i'm not as sympathetic anymore right uh, i you know and, and it wouldn't be as sympathetic i i'm a, i would sympathize from the point of view of a progressive socialist understanding of how culture works and how how you know uh, uh money works against not you know no money but this group of people who just elected the most frightening president this country has ever had in its entire history and are defiantly pro guns which you know the, the complete gun freedom which is you know puts a lot of people's lives in danger um i can't be sympathetic to that anymore yeah, yeah. It, it's just not yeah you know, i understand some of the uh, the self-esteem issues of, of of twenty years ago or fifteen years ago when I wrote this book, but it's beyond that now, right. and it's becoming like if you don't see it now, I can't say oh uh, you know it's, it's just because you don't have the perspective. You have enough perspective to know that, um, it, it, and it's whiny sort of like what about me? You know when like Black Ma- Black Lives Matter. When when you hear people um, criticize that, you're like, well, what about white lives? It's like how tone deaf and ignorant can you possibly yeah. be? So no, it wouldn't be a sympathetic book now, not nearly. I would be sympathetic to the conditions that that um, that div- put a wedge between um, poor whites and poor blacks during the civil rights era, but I couldn't be sympathetic towards this whole new crop. Right. Yeah. So has there? Um, so I would. I would. If I were, I was. I've even thought about adding a chapter to that. I, I was, that was my next yeah. question. Like, I, I know when books get, you know, whatever, ten or fifteen year anniversaries, they, you know, you can redo the. Yeah. You can redo the forward or whatever it may be. Um, it's. I would. I would love to. <laughs> if you can personally send me your, uh, you know, your revised forward to it. Right. Um, yeah, and you could I, – I could see doing a, a new chapter based on now. And I may, I, I may do it yet. Yeah, I don't know. Like I don't have a lot of time. I'm back where I was. But so at the end of Dixie Lullaby, I think my last chapter is called Learning to Crawl. So I, I go through this period of transition in southern history that, you know, getting through civil rights and and and, and the end is a happy ending. <laughs> Um, what was the timing? The book came out in two thousand four. When and then Obama happened. And then Obama, yeah. So you must uh, have felt like, oh yeah, we're we're this like is, we're on the road. Yeah, we're on the road to recovery, basically. <laughs> and and so this is kind of a, it's I end it, you know, like we're learning to crawl, and we're gonna <laughs> crawl, and we're gonna grow, and the world's gonna be okay. And lo and behold, uh, you know. Now we're here, sitting here with Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Boy, was I wrong. I mean, I couldn't have been more wrong in the end of this book. So I would love to write that chat about, oh, shit, man. I was right. just I, – I didn't see that coming. None of us saw that coming. 
And here we are. I mean, the world is facing real dangers. Yeah. Because of this turnaround. And so, yeah, maybe I will. Well, well I mean, it's a it's a very profound book and like I said it's uh it's very timely. Uh, you know, I think the, yeah. I think if uh people could, you know, pick it pick it up now, you know, yeah, it might give you a little it, bit more context or uh I think you know, it does. Understanding. Yeah. I th- I think um I think if if anybody read it now, they would have a different understanding. I th- I think maybe it might make people understand how it got. I mean, it, like I said, I wouldn't be as sympathetic to to as I am to some of the people that I am in this book, uh, and, I, and I'm not totally sympathetic. I mean, I, you know, I'm not sympathetic to the racism or anything like that. I'm in fact quite the opposite. But I'm sympathetic to the conditions, and um, so I think if anybody read the book, if please do read it. By the way, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at. Um, University of Georgia Press, which who who, is, who re- reissued it a few years later in paperback. But um, I think you would have a better understanding of the monster that we've created. Right. Yeah. Um, not to get off this subject, I was I, I, I I'm curious to know a little bit about the mechanics of you know uh, of the book industry, like how you know. You pitched the book. Mm-hmm. Did it, was is it a lot like the music industry? Did you do you get an advance? Yep. in which has to be paid back upon sales. Well, or? no, um, <laughs> and, and much like the music industry, um, uh, whatever advance you get, you have to sell before you can start making money off the book. Right, in other right, words, right. I got to pay back the tens of thousands of dollars that I got before I make anything off the book. And if the book doesn't ever you know, recoup, then you just don't make anything. Right. I mean, you don't have to pay it back, you know. But, um, so yeah, I was signed to a major label. <laughs> I put my first album out. And, uh, yeah, and it's, and the book did it fairly well, but, you know, I'm, I'm not receiving great residuals or anything. But the book did as well as I thought it would do because it's a very, it's, the name of it is book, Dixie Lullaby, a, music, a story of music, race, and new beginnings in a new South. So you know from that title that you're not getting, you know, the story of the Allman Brothers, right. the story of Southern Rock. And I didn't put Southern Rock in the title for a reason because it's not about Southern Rock. Southern Rock plays a big role in this narrative, but it's not about Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers. It's about much more than that. It's about the South and a particular time and the lives and the transition and how how certain people got through that transition and that's why i call it a story and not the story Mm -hmm. uh it's my story it's definitely my story from my perspective talking to other people my age and then talking to a lot of the musicians themselves and about the music and the culture and how this thing happened during the 60s and 70s and then its effects on the 80s 90s and early 2000s and that's what the story is about and so it mixes culture and politics and music together to form you know kind of a view of the South right. uh, uh, during a particular time period. Um, so that's what I sold. I, I mean, if you read the preface to it where I talk mm-hmm. about being a little kid and, you know, I'm in elementary school and we're told that, you know, all of a sudden we're, black kids from another school are going to join us. And that was the beginning of sort of desegregation in that town at that school. Right. And that's that. That's what I sold the book on, you know. Dave took that to several publishers, and, and there was a guy at uh, Free Press, Simon Schuster, who really, uh, really spoke to him. Um, Dominique was his name, and he said, "Yeah, I think this this sounds really interesting. Let's do this." And so I got the book deal, and I got the advance, and I went, "Oh fuck!" I was looking at my computer screen one day, and it was white, and I went, 
Okay, I've written I articles. I've written words on this. <laughs> yeah, it's like I've written 3,000 word articles. I've written 6,000 word articles. But we're talking about several chapters that'll be like more than 10,000 words each. And I went, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I had to go. I had to go to my recovery sort of mindset. Go one day at a time, <laughs> one step at a time, one chapter at a time, and that's what I did. I just went through all my. I had done all this research. I'd been throughout the South, and you know, and and I started in New York, right. you know, and uh, and I remember going, you know, I can't do this in New York. I got to go back to the South because I don't. I haven't been living there in fifteen years, you know. So I came back. And uh, there was a job at the Charlotte Observer for entertainment editor. And I needed a job to kind of do this. I mean, I had my advance money, sure. but I needed a job, and I applied there, and they hired me. So I worked in the daytime as the entertainment editor at the Charlotte Observer, and I was living uptown, right, you know, next to the Panther Stadium and some you know apartments kind of. over there. Yeah, um, and um, I would get up at every morning at like. Five o'clock in the morning, and I would write from like five thirty to nine thirty. Yeah, five thirty to no, 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 five thirty to like eight thirty. Then I would go to work, and I'd work all day, and I would come home and I'd be exhausted, and I'd go to sleep early, and I'd get up the next day at five o'clock in the morning, five thirty in the morning, and do it all over again for like two years. <laughs> yeah, and it was, uh, it was, uh, it was great. I enjoyed it, and, and it was. You know, one of the first things I saw, I was up there in my uh, apartment. It was on the tenth floor, and had these beautiful, like uh, floor-to-ceiling windows onto Uptown Charlotte. It's really beautiful. But the back windows went onto the cemetery back there. You know where those Confederate soldier statues are, or Confederate monuments. I'm sorry, I think. Yeah. Um, and at that time, up there was this huge uh, pole, flagpole with a Confederate flag on it, and I went. Oh fuck! Wow. I am back down south. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it was two, it's two thousand two, two thousand three, and a Confederate flag is on a flagpole behind my home in this kind of New South metropolis. How, it's, it was kind of the perfect setting to tell this story because that contrast was just so stark and ugly in a lot of ways right. and uh, and and you know of course in the in recent years it's become more ugly and more stark to the point that people are saying no you're not going to do that anymore you cause you know yeah. the, we're not going to do that anymore it's ugly past and we have to admit and and come to terms with that ugly past which is what we do in the book a lot you know? yeah well i mean again it's it's so i mean just what you talked about the flag the, mm -hmm. the monuments. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's. that's I, I that's talk a, about all that in the book. Yeah. A month old news right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it's you know really if uh, yeah someone from Simon Simon and Schuster is listening. Yeah, yeah. I should <laughs> actually call them up. I should get, and see if they want an extra chapter. And give, yeah. Would you give me the same advance for like one <laughs> chapter? <laughs> uh, well, let me wrap up with uh, the final five. The final five is same five questions everybody gets. Okay. Um, all my guests. So uh, the first question is, what is the most extravagant expense you've made on something music related? Oh, God. Um, since I'm not a musician, um, maybe it's probably very different. Um, no, I mean, it may not be that much. 
different. But you know, probably the Martin guitar. No, I tell you what it was. It was when I was very, very young, and it wasn't really that much money at all. Though it was a lot of money back. Well, in, then. Yeah, I was going to say in in, uh, in context of how yeah. how old you were, how much you had in the bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like 1974 or something, and I bought a 1965 Gibson Hummingbird, like uh, you see on like the cover. I mean, not cover on uh, in Rolling Stone Pictures. Keith Richards plays a uh, uh, Gibson Hummingbird. Um, and I just thought it was the most beautiful guitar in the world. And I got a, uh, I got you know, I got a 1965 version of it. It's a classic model. And I don't, I think I paid, I don't know, two hundred dollars for it. You still it, have it? It was stolen. Oh no. Oh yeah. What, what's, do you know what? It, do you know what it's worth today? Oh, uh, way more than three grand. I mean, some of them are like five grand, six grand. Right. And. And uh, when I look online and stuff, it just makes me want to Ugh. throw up because I got it for next to nothing. It was this wonderful, wonderful guitar. So that's the most extravagant thing I ever Where'd spent. Where did it get stolen? Were you in New York or back in North Carolina? <laughs> Believe it or not, it was a Grateful Dead concert. I had played the night before um, at this club in, in college uh, at, a, at this restaurant called The Treehouse, and I put it in my trunk. And I, did, I forgot to take it out before I went the next day. Me and some friends went to a Grateful Dead concert in Virginia and parked. And uh, my girlfriend had put her pocketbook. She wanted to put it in the trunk. So I said, open up the trunk and put it, her pocketbook in the trunk. And we went into the concert, and it was Grateful Dead, so we were woozy. Mm -hmm. We were not, not completely, you know, we were seeing things breathe and stuff <laughs> so by the time we got out we were we were pretty high and um i, I remember looking at the car and well, something's wrong here and somebody had popped the trunk and stolen everything uh, including my 1965 gibson homer sad 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 day that sucks yeah it sucked <laughs> i never really liked i got a martin after that it cost a lot more and i never really liked it because I just never warmed up to it because I loved that hummingbird so much. Yeah, well, it's funny. I know you did. You you worked for uh, acoustic guitar. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So I figured you gotta you gotta know your way around the, uh, the fretboard I a little bit. Almost got another hummingbird, but uh, again, they were the the nineteen sixty fives one are very expensive to get, and then the new ones it just wouldn't be quite the same. Yeah. So what I got I got this mahogany small body to Martin that I this Martin I do like a lot because Valerie June, the singer songwriter plays one and she was we, I, I launched this thing called acoustic guitar sessions where people came on and would play mm -hmm. songs and we would talk about guitars and she brought in her little small body martin and i and i just loved it and just the sound of it it sounded raw and raunchy and bluesy and uh i asked her about it and she told me a story about it and i went i want a guitar just like valerie june has so i got one only mine's got a slotted headstock instead okay. of a regular one, but yeah, I know a little bit about guitars. I'm not that great, but yeah. I play a little. Cool. Uh, question number two is: If I were to give you a million bucks uh, for a charity, one charity, who gets it? Time Out Youth. <laughs> I don't know. Time Out Youth is a, is an organization in Charlotte that helps young LGBTQ people of color who are faced with like being put out on the streets by their mm -hmm. parents because maybe their parents don't like you know that they're lgbtq or whatever i don't know you know they're they're faced with homelessness and timeout youth really really does an amazing job of of nurturing those children and giving helping them you know with their education and their dreams and their artistic pursuits and 
I just think they're amazing, and I would give probably a good chunk of it to Time Out Youth and maybe the rest of it to um, somebody that helps uh, really get one. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Time Out Youth, you're, you are now rich. Congratulations. With <laughs> are they just, do they have a charter in, in Charlotte? Are they national? No, they're just, just Charlotte. Yeah. Charlotte. And that's important to me. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now, so that's important to me. Mm-hmm. Charlotte is important to me. This community is very, very important to me. Nice. Uh, all right, so uh, enough of the serious stuff. Mm-hmm. This is uh, number three is what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? So walk-up music, you know what that is? Uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's music that you would play on the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not uh, in yet, though. You're not in? <laughs> well, I mean, things are looking good. Okay, let's see. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I have, I don't know. I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> I don't know why. I want anything. Amy, I don't know. I'm thinking about all the music. I'm trying to think of the right song, though. And none of the, right. Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> One last time. <laughs> exactly. That, don't, that might be the answer to my next question. Yeah. The next question is, uh, what song is stuck on repeat in hell? Uh, Freebird. <laughs> Particularly after writing that book, I had to I had to listen to it. I had to go back and listen to it even more. And yeah, it's great. It's Funny. a great song. But my God, those guitar solos at the end just want to smack. Makes me want to smash stuff and listen to the Ramones. <laughs> uh, last question, which I'm anxious to hear. You've touched upon a couple of things, and I know you like you just said you put on this acoustic thing. But uh, what's your best live music experience? U2, 1983, Keenan Stadium, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Wow. Good answer. Yeah. U2 were at their most hungry and, and, and wild and creative. And they were just put, and it rained during that show, and Bono had this white flag. It was, it was the um, um, that, uh, war tour. And um, he was young, and he climbed up a scaffolding, and, and um, it was raining, and he was almost defying lightning to come down and strike him. They were phenomenal, and opening up for them was this. I had heard about hip-hop and rap, right. but I'd never really, you know, Curtis Blow was what I thought, let's do the breaks, you know, that. And uh, I, then I saw Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and I was right up because they kind of had set up in front of the um, the bleachers, you know, uh, or whatever they are at Keenan Stadium. And I could watch, I could watch them manipulate the turntables, and I was like, what are they doing with those record players? <laughs> And it was phenomenal. I went, well, this is another instrument. This is a new instrument. And it was, you know, it was a new, it was the new yeah. lead guitar. He was the new Chuck Berry and they were doing amazing stuff. And that, that's whenever I went, wow, this stuff is cool. Yeah. This right. hip hop thing. I think it might last. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I know you gave me uh, much more time than a lot of people give me. And I think we have a good, uh, we probably have a good two-parter. Good, if, good. If not well, three. So, I, en- uh, I enjoy talking about this stuff. And, anytime I might uh, have you back. I'd love to have you back. Sure. Um, yeah. and maybe we can dive into Dixie Lullaby. I know, uh, I know some people around town, we might have to bring them in. and That would be good. I, you know, maybe like a, a, a bigger, larger panel on, yeah. on an issue that we could really kind of go Cause into. I, cause I, know, I know a couple of locals, and I just mentioned it to, the other, him, to him the other day. Like, you got you to gotta read it one time. Once I'm done with it. No, you've got to buy your own. <laughs> yes, you've got to buy his own. <laughs> you've got to uh, advance to recoup. All right, right. All right, thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Here. All right. I've got 
I admit it, I was very anxious and excited to have Mark here when we first got in contact. And he didn't disappoint. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm sure we could have easily squeezed in another couple of hours of conversation given the chance. So we'll have to have him back soon. We hope to have you all back next week for another Rockonomics podcast episode. Tell your friends about us, subscribe, leave a comment about us on iTunes, and contact us at dill at rockonomicspodcast.com if you'd like to give us any feedback or suggestions. That's all I've got for you this week. Until next week, good night, Cleveland.